0: On May 29th, 1953, Edmund Hillary and his Sherpa, Tenzing Norgay, became the first climbers to reach the summit of Mount Everest. When reporters asked Hillary, why did you want to climb Everest? He simply stated, because it was there. At 29,028 feet above sea level, Everest is the highest mountain in the world. Since Hillary's summit, only around 5,000 people have reached the mountain's peak. 306 have died trying, most of whom remain frozen on the mountainside. Successfully reaching the summit involves months of training, preparation, and time spent climbing the mountain, not to mention the roughly $65,000 you have to spend on permit fees, equipment, and travel. To get to the top, climbers must brave what's called the death zone, the area more than 26,000 feet above sea level, where the body cannot get enough oxygen. Once you're in the death zone, the lung-crushing conditions and extreme weather only give climbers around 24 hours to make the disorienting push for the summit before the swelling in your brain and your lungs kills you. If you're one of the few who make it to the top, you only have a few minutes until the lack of oxygen and weather force you back down. Now, while I'm sure it's breathtaking, literally, to stand on top of the world, even for just a few minutes, no one really wants to stay up there forever. The housing market on on Everest is non-existent. Even if we could live on the top of Everest, who would really want to? No one wants to dwell on that mountain forever. Well, our sermon passage this morning brings us to the top of another mountain, and it gives us a picture of what life there will look like. But when we stand at the top of of the base camp of this mountain, we quickly recognize that none of us are good enough to get to the top. The only way up will be on the back of another. And unlike Everest, this, this is a mountain we all desperately want to call home. Not just for a few minutes, but forever. Why? Well, not because it's there, but because God is there. But how can that happen? And what does life look like there? Well, that's the question our sermon text answers for us this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 15. If you don't have one, you can find, it, find the text on page 9 of the worship guide that you got on your way in this morning. Well, at, at only 5 verses, Psalm 15 is one of the shortest psalms in the Bible. Now, I can't promise that that will mean this is going to be one of the shortest sermons you hear. But we'll see. But even though the psalm is short, it packs quite the punch. And it and it asks one of the most important questions that we could ever ask ourselves, and it gives us one of the most important answers that we could ever receive. So Psalm 15. A psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Well, verse one opens with with two questions that set the theme and, and highlight the real drama of the psalm, and then the rest of the psalm is going to spin out the answer to those questions for us, showing us what it looks like to. To walk in communion with God on his holy mountain. And then the last part of verse 5 is gonna give us a picture of, of what's in store for the one, for the one who lives like this, a, a promise, a kind of reward, even waiting for the one who walks in God's way. In many ways, Psalm 15 is the antithesis to the psalm we looked at last week, Psalm 14. In Psalm 14, David describes our sinful condition before God and, and it instructs us to avoid the way of the fool. But Psalm 15 flips 14 on, on its head, holding, holding up in front of our faces one who is blameless, godly, dare we say it, even good, which initially feels strange to us, even impossible. Given that God in the psalm just before declared none of us good, not even one. So, who who in the world is this person David's talking about in Psalm 15? And how are they able to, to dwell with God on his holy hill? Well, without giving you any spoilers up front, that's what and who Psalm 15 is all about. It's a kind of tribute, esteeming the person who embodies these attributes and, and it summons us into, a deeply, into these deeply moral realities and, and the dignity of real virtue, while at the same time calling us to a code that, that none of us can keep perfectly. And all of, it, all of it works together to drive home the main idea of this psalm which is this. Only the one who walks with God will dwell with God. Only the one who walks with God will dwell with God. And we'll unpack this idea by by following the basic structure of this psalm. The important question that that comes to us in verse 1, and the incredible answer that that comes in verses two to five. And those are just going to serve as our two two points this morning. Point one, an incredible answer, or an important question. An important question, that's verse one. And then point number two, an incredible answer. Point two, an incredible answer. So point number one, an important question. An important question. Verse one opens with one of the most important questions posed in the entire Bible. And one of the, the reoccurring drumbeats that, that we hear throughout the book of Psalms, David's twofold use of the covenant name of God, which opens verse one, Lord, and, and which is echoed again in verse four, make the Psalms audience clear to us. The Psalm is written for Israel, God's covenant people, which means that, that Psalm 15 is not a how-to for teaching outsiders how to gain entrance into the family of God. Instead, it's showing us what it looks like for one to already be a part of the family. Psalm 15 is what a person in the covenant community should and ought to look like. So this opening question is not necessarily interested in in how one gains admission into God's presence. But about what it means to dwell with God as one of his redeemed children. The qualities the the psalm is going to go on to describe aren't those that God finds in man. They're what God creates and the people he covenants with. In other words, it's, it's not about what God requires of us to be in his presence. But about who we become in his presence. Now, all of this gets reinforced by those two opening parallel questions. David ponders who will sojourn? Who will dwell on God's tent and holy hill? The Old Testament uses, uses that verb, sojourn, to, to speak of an outsider living among the confines of Israel, sort of like a native Texan sojourning in the Holy Land of Arkansas. But what's shocking here is that David is applying the word not to outsiders, but to Israelites. David's essentially calling the people of God exiles who are looking for a home. Which the reference to God's tent and holy hill highlight. The reference to Yahweh's tent it, It isn't a reference to to some generic camping structure that you and I would throw up uh, on a float trip down the Buffalo. He's drawing our attention to the tabernacle, which is where God took up residence among his people until the temple was built. And the temple was was the place where God's people worshipped Yahweh. It was a holy place where you went to meet with God. You didn't come flippantly. You came as a humble guest. Like an, like an exile who knew they didn't belong. And all of this was, was intimately tied to, to the Lord's holy hill. For Israel, the reference to God's holy hill would have, would have most immediately uh, evoked images of, of Mount Sinai, the mountain on which Moses dwelled with God and God established his covenant with the Israelites. But it also would have evoked images of Mount Zion, the place identified with the hill on which the holy city of of Jerusalem stood. And throughout the Bible, Zion is is considered the the very dwelling place of God himself to which all the nations would one day stream. So taken together with with the previous reference to God's tent, all of this was meant to evoke an image of, of God's house, his special and eternal dwelling place. The point of it all being the very presence of God himself. So verse verse 1 is not just some throwaway question that David is, is using just to jumpstart this piece of poetry. No, this is a theologically loaded, covenantally rich, eternally weighty question that frames the entire psalm. It's vitally important, not just to the structure of the psalm, but to what it would have signaled to the Israelites and what it ought to arouse in our own hearts. Just as it would have for the Old Testament Israelites, such a question ought to signal our own exile as Christians in this life and remind us of our own unworthiness to be one of God's covenant people. Think of how Paul calls us, no longer strangers or aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, Ephesians 2.19. So in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, to sojourn in God's tent, to dwell on his holy hill, is to catch a glimpse like a foreigner and exile, the eternal home that we are all headed for. This glorious reality, it, it ought to elicit our 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 worship and our humble adoration, because none of us should be there. We don't belong in God's house except by by God's divine call and gracious acceptance of us to be his people. Our sinful condition, it, it disqualifies us from dwelling with him on his holy hill. Our, our sin and his holiness, they are incompatible. They can't live together under the same roof. And so we only get to be in God's house because God wants us there. Remember how Moses put it to Israel in Deuteronomy 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel gets to be God's covenant people because God makes them his covenant people. He wanted them to be his people, which means that that God just doesn't get stuck with us as his roommates. He actually chooses sinners like us to live with him in his house. And then he actually lets us stay. Instead of kicking us out, he keeps us around. Instead of changing the locks, he, he gives us the keys and lets us take up residence in his house. This ought to make us the most humble of people, because none of us deserve to be a guest in God's house. This is what the words to, to Isaac Watts' beautiful hymn, How Sweet and Awful is the Place, capture so well. How sweet and awful is the place, awful with an E, inspiring worship. How sweet and awful is the place with, with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs songs join to admire the feast. Each of us cry with thankful tongues. Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room. When thousands make a wretched choice. And rather starve than come. Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Humble, unworthy, thankful exiles and guests, that's what the gracious, saving kindness of God should make us. But if it's impossible for us to to live with God under the same roof, how does God let that happen? How's that possible? Answer, he calls us, justifies us, and then he glorifies us. Romans 8.30, those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Old Testament Israel looked forward to this answer, but we look back at it. And yet both of us are, are justified by faith in the same promise. Old Testament Israel and the promise God made and New Testament Christians, Christians and the promise God kept. God's always required that his people exercise faith in him and, and to take him at his word. And now in, Now he calls us to do that same thing by having faith in the word made flesh, his son, Jesus Christ. And it's only by being justified by faith in the promise God's kept to us in Christ that we can dwell with him in his holy house. So in in opening the psalm with this question, David is asking one of the Bible's most important questions. Who enjoys true fellowship with God under his covenant and eternal blessings and love? What does one justified by God look like? Am I one of those people? This is one of, if not the most important questions that you could ever ask yourself. It is eternally and, in, and, and infinitely more important than any other question. Where should I go to college? What should my major be? What should I eat for lunch today? Who should I marry? Will I even get married? Will I find a job when I graduate? Will 2021 be better than 2020? Will I get the coronavirus? Will my test come back positive or or negative? When when will I get the vaccine? Will the vaccine even work? What's going to happen to me when I get the vaccine? Should I even get the vaccine? When will this pandemic be over? What's going to happen under the Biden administration? Will the Razorbacks win their bowl game? Should we have another baby? Speaking of babies, what's going to happen to Baby Yoda in season three of The Mandalorian? <laughs> we are all bombarded with a million questions like this every single day. We are, our minds are consumed by them. They're all important to varying degrees. But none of them are as important as the question Psalm 15 is asking. Who shall sojourn in God's tent? Who shall dwell on his holy hill? That's the question we need to be asking. And it's this question that David answers in the rest of the psalm. And this leads us to our next point. So point number two, an incredible answer. An incredible answer. Verses 2 to 5 give us a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of the kind of attributes and affections that that ought to mark us when God calls us into a covenant relationship with himself. At first glance, the the kind of person we find seems almost too good to be true. Uh, The bar seems impossibly high. But it's a bar that we all strive for. It's a bar that we all want to reach, right? Psalm 15 is the kind of person we all want to be. Verses 2 to 5, it's the kind of person we want to be, the kind of community that we all want to live in. I mean, nobody, nobody looks at these verses and says, yeah, no thanks. I, I would rather be a deceptive, evil-loving, people-hurting financially dishonest backstabber. Oh, and those are also the kind of people I want to surround myself with. No one in their right mind is saying that. No, this Psalm 15 man is the kind of, of church member we all want to be to one another, and it's the kind of neighbor we want living next door to us. So, so what does this life look like? Well, broadly speaking, David David's going to focus on three categories of living. Three categories of living. One, your heart. Two, your tongue. And three, your money. Your heart, your tongue, and your money. So let's look at that first category, the heart. The heart. Verse 2 speaks of of one who walks blamelessly, does what is right, and speaks the truth in his heart. So the redeemed walk blamelessly do and, and speak in such a way that shows ultimate delight in the law of the Lord. This is the kind of man that, that's celebrated in Psalm 1 and the very opposite of the fool that gets rejected in Psalm 14. The word blameless there doesn't refer to, to sinless perfection, but to a pattern of, of conduct that's beyond the, the, the reach of public reproach. This man is, is whole, he's sound, he's honest, full of integrity. He's the real deal. What he is on the outside is, is who he is on the inside. Blameless, is, it's the same word that the Bible uses to describe Noah, Moses, and Abraham. Right? And like those men, the, the Psalm 15 man desires to please God and, and to do what he commands. And in many ways, he who walks blamelessly there in verse 2, it, it, it hangs like a banner over all the other attributes that flow out of it. Unpacking what it means to, to actually walk blamelessly. And so not only does he walk blamelessly, he does what is right. He lives to obey God. His actions are pure and righteous and reflect what he loves in his heart. And related to that is the truth that he speaks in his heart. His fundamental impulse is one of honesty, transparency, and forthrightness. The moral and and ethical engine that drives all of his decision-making runs on the pure, unadulterated fuel of the truth. And this is tied tightly to the kind of company that the man keeps in verse 4. He despises the vile and, and honors those who fear the Lord. So this isn't, this isn't some pharisaical act of judgment. He's not flaunting some holier-than-thou moral superiority. Instead, he's showing where his allegiances lie. He's casting his vote for godliness. What he admires, values, and, and honors is righteousness living and all of this all of this together it reveals a heart that is fixed on the things of god the needle of of this man's moral compass always points north the magnetic pool of godliness always leading him in its direction and why is this emphasis on the heart so important what's david trying to show us because we naturally think God's more interested about what's on the outside than the inside. We we think outer conformity, modifying our behavior, or following a list of of rules is what really pleases the Lord. I wonder if that's what what you think this morning it, it means to be approved by God. You know, if I can just if I can just get myself cleaned up on the outside, if, if I can just make sure I jump through the right religious hoops, then, then God will be pleased with me. Friend, that's, that is not what it looks like to walk with God. That is what it looks like to walk with the world. The Psalm 15 man is teaching you a different way. You know, the second, second category that David turns us to is, is the tongue, which is, of course, closely related to the heart. The man who speaks truth in his heart does not slander with his tongue, verse 3, nor do his words lead him to do evil to his neighbor, verse 3, nor does he take up reproach against his friend, verse 3, meaning he doesn't entertain gossip about others or, or discredit their name. And then in verse 4, he swears to his own hurt, and he does not change, which, which means that he keeps his word no matter the cost, even if it means he has to personally take the hit for keeping it. And all of this points to who this man is at a heart level. What does Jesus say about the tongue in Luke 6, 45? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or consider the book of James. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. The Psalm 15 man is a perfect man, and his words prove it. He holds his tongue because God holds his heart. This the same person our own church covenant at UBC calls us to be when we promise to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary, exemplary in our way of life, to avoid harmful gossip, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and, and courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation if you're a member of UBC, how are you doing on that end of the bargain? Are you keeping your end of those, those kind of tongue-tied promises? Does your tongue reveal who your heart truly belongs to? Are you the kind of church member who, who starts fires with your words? Or are you the kind of church member who puts fires out with your words? This Psalm 15 man would call us to take an inventory of our mouths, of our words. The final category deals with the love of money, the love of money. And some have taken that first part of of verse 5 to mean that Christians should never charge interest. But I don't think that that's what David has in mind. In general, charging interest isn't, isn't condemned in the Bible what it does condemn is charging interest when doing so takes advantage of, of someone's misfortunes. Those who needed loans were usually poor, in distress, or or in a vulnerable situation. So, so this, is, this wasn't like today's consumer lending practices. Right? You didn't ask for a loan so you could, you could buy the latest iPhone. You needed to borrow money because crops had failed because you were desperate and and you needed justice done. And it was easy to prey on those in these vulnerable spots and and to extort them for shameful, selfish gain. But such dealings were were not to mark the people of God. The people of God were to extend generosity and, and show hospitality toward one another, giving freely to those in need. And this is what the Psalm 15 man does. He looks to give rather than to receive, valuing people more than what's in his wallet. In his eyes, the needy are, are worth the personal financial hit he'll take to help them, to meet their need. And this love of money, love of people over money, is, it's also reflected in his unwillingness to take a bribe at the expense of, of the innocent. The Psalm 15 man, he won't be paid off to pervert the truth or prevent justice from getting done because he loves the truth more than his bank accounts. He cares about how he makes his money and where that money comes from. He puts his money where his mouth and his heart are. And taken together, these verses, they they portray what it looks like to be in communion with God. It's the kind of person who, who loves God and loves other people supremely, chiefly, and wholeheartedly. But the question we've got to be asking ourselves when we get to the end of this picture is who loves like that? Who, who loves like that? Who actually lives this Psalm 15 kind of life? Well, most immediately, David believe it or not, is identifying himself as that person. Like Abraham, Moses, and Noah before him, David walked blamelessly before the Lord and was counted as a man after God's own heart. But like those men, David failed to walk in these ways perfectly. In a sense, Israel too fulfills this picture. God had redeemed them to be his people and to reflect his law But Israel also failed, and they failed miserably to love God and one another like this. So when we look at Psalm 15, what we see is a long list of failures staring back at us. Except for one man. Except for one man. There is only one man who ever really enjoyed the blessings of verse 1. Only one person, one person who ever walked the walk of verses 2 to 5. Only Jesus does Psalm 15. And he does it perfectly, supremely, completely, vicariously. He stands alone at the top of this mountain. You know, in Psalm 2.6, God makes a declarative statement about the true king who rules from his throne on Zion. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The New Testament identifies this king that God is talking about as Jesus Christ. But Jesus did not simply come to God's temple on Zion. Jesus came to us as the temple. In his very body, Jesus came and dwelt among us, bringing the dwelling place of God Down to earth. So, do you want to see what what true communion with God looks like? Do you want to see the most perfect, most incredible man who ever lived? Then look at Jesus. Jesus is the living, breathing embodiment of Psalm 15. He enacted it, He embodied it, He recapitulated it, He walked and talked it out. He came not to do his will, but the will of his father. Not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He was the blameless one whose greatest delight in life was obedience to God's word. Even when tempted, Jesus never veered from his commitment to do what was right. His food was to do the will of his father always. Even with his words, Jesus did Psalm 15. He is the word. He is what God has to say, and he's the only one who committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth, 1 Peter 2, 2, 22. Jesus never spoke untruly and yet offered himself up for, on behalf of those who have. He never once set fire with his tongue. He never lied, never shaded the truth, never gossiped, never entertained it, never tore down another in order to build himself up never made a promise he couldn't keep. And his dealings with others, the one who said it is better to give than to receive, lived that out with his whole life. He defended the fatherless, pled the widow's cause, healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, proclaimed good news to the poor, and set free the oppressed. Rather than extort his friends, He became one extorted by a friend. Though he was rich, he became poor for our sake, giving up his throne to take up our cross. He didn't rob the vulnerable. He valued them so much so that he gave his life up for them. And Jesus did all of this to the glory of his father. But he also did it for us. Jesus did Psalm 15 in our place, and his perfect and sinless life gets credited to us if we are in him. United to him, the blessings of verse 1 and the character of verses 2 to 5 become ours. Christ's home, our home. His life, our life. His obedience, our obedience. His record, our record. His righteousness, our righteousness. All of it, all of it gets, gets counted to us. In fact, the, the New Testament goes as far as to say that in Christ, we are actually becoming his temple. In him, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, Ephesians 2.22. So Psalm 15 is talking about Jesus. Yes, absolutely, and amen. But it is also talking about us. In Christ, Psalm 15 is who you are. And it is increasingly who you will become in Christ. We can't reverse engineer our way into the Psalm 15 man. But in Christ, by the renewing of his spirits, this is both who we are and who and what we will become. God has given his spirit to us as a guarantee of this. Giving us new hearts and making us new creations so that we might walk in the good works he's prepared for us. The old dead man who could never live the Psalm 15 life is gone, and the new man has come. Brothers and and sisters, Psalm 15 is who you are. So be Psalm 15. Be Psalm 15. We will not be these things perfectly. Sin will still snap away at your heels, but it will no longer define us like it once did. Be encouraged. You may not see yourself completely in Psalm 15 yet, but in Christ you will grow and mature more and more into this person. The one who began this good work in you will complete it. He will complete it. If you're here and and you're not a Christian, you need to hear And know that it is impossible for you to be this person apart from Jesus Christ. None of us can be Psalm 15 on our own. We all desperately want to be this person, but none of us can do it on our own. The only way to dwell with God is to walk with the one who did. None of us find our way to the top of this mountain by taking our own path. But here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that God doesn't leave us to to find our own way to him. Instead, he comes down to us and in Christ brings us back up to him. Jesus takes on flesh. He lives the perfectly obedient life to God that you and I could never live. And then he dies on the cross to pay the penalty of sin that that we deserve. And now Jesus stands alive, ruling at the right hand of his father, inviting us to, to dwell with him forever in his father's house. If we will turn from our sin and we place our faith and trust and hope In him and in his work. This is this is the way. It is the only way that sinners like us can can be made to dwell with God in his house. So, friend, turn from your sin, repent and believe. Trust in Jesus. You know, verse, verse five, it concludes. It concludes with an incredible promise. A kind of reward that awaits those who have been redeemed by God. The qualities that that God creates in those he calls to himself, it results in this unshakable confidence and the certainty of of his dwelling place with God. David says that the one who does these things shall never be moved. This isn't... This isn't just what David thinks will happen for those who walk with God. This is a promise that God makes to them. They get a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what God has in store for those of us who walk in these ways, who walk in the one who did. This is what Dottie read for us from Hebrews 12 earlier, which means that, that if you and I are are walking in the only one who did these things in Jesus Christ, then our place with God is secure. It is a done deal. We we are restored to God right now, and we will walk with him on his holy hill forever. We will walk with him on his holy hill forever. In Revelation 21, God sees that promise, this promise that God is making right here at the end of Psalm 15. He sees it become a reality. This is what John sees and says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city The one who did these things for us in our place, Jesus Christ. He, he inaugurates that kingdom and secures our citizenship in that city. No matter what trials we endure or face in this life, we can be confident of our place with God and the one to come. Our eternal residence with God, it will never be revoked or, or denied in Christ. Our place with the Father is as fixed. It's as fixed as the Son who sits at his right hand. For him to revoke our citizenship in Zion would be for him to revoke his very own sons. And in Christ, our our temporary visas in this life will give way to an irrevocably heavenly citizenship with God that will extend forever, on and on and on into eternity. We will be home, and we will be there for good. For the one who walks with God will dwell with God forever. Let's pray.